You're listening to What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Here's your hosts, Tommy and Derek. My goodness, it's been so long, but we are back. Yay! <laughs> We've got new content wrapped in a shiny new intro and outro. Thank you very much, Christy. We are kicking things off by connecting the National Marine Electronics Association to your smartphone privacy. Seems weird, right? Well, we've got that and more coming your way. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Before we kick things off, Derek and I want to send out a huge thank you. The voice you heard at the beginning of the podcast and the one you're going to hear again at the end and for all episodes moving forward is the voice of none other than Christy Lee, host of Canadian True Crime. While Derek and I were on our hiatus, I had the opportunity to listen to a lot of podcasts and the one that I listened to nearly every single day until there weren't any episodes left to listen to was Canadian True Crime. Christie's excellent podcast was a huge source of reinvigoration to get back on track for this show. And so I couldn't help but thinking about doing our show without her voice in it. So I emailed her, and she very graciously accepted. And we are absolutely and entirely honored to have your wonderful contribution to our show. So Christy, thank you again so very much on behalf of Derek and our listeners. We're stoked to have you. And without any further ado... All right, we're recording... I, yeah, we're recording, bro. How do we start this episode? We haven't actually spoken together on a, an episode since November. I I honestly have no I no clue. This <laughs> this is no joke. We didn't we didn't really plan this. We just chased no. each other. Yeah. So what have you been up to? Well, aside from chasing you and you chasing me to get this thing going again, <laughs> uh, some wedding prep. Wedding prep has been going on. A lot of research. And trying to get through the rest of the summer until my marriage so that I can get on with the second year of my postdoc. But what I've been primarily tied up with professionally is this data tracking project, which is going swimmingly. It's been really, mm. really fun. Uh, well, it's speaking of weddings, I got married. So that's <laughs> nice. That happened too. <laughs> <laughs> and you got married in Mexico. I'm really sorry yeah. I couldn't make that, man. Yeah, well, I, I was bummed too. But, you know, that's just what you do when you get married in the middle of a semester with somebody who works in academia. It doesn't really work out very well. <laughs> and the, the wedding was obviously a good time. It was a great time. Yeah, yeah, the wife and I, the now wife and I had a had a blast. So it was great. But other than that, yeah, same on my side. Lots of research. Um, lots, a million things happening that you know just made it impossible to connect in terms of time so i'm glad to be talking with you right now though yeah you too man it really has been a crazy term when you you asked me what's going on like my brain went left and right at the same time because it's almost impossible to keep track of everything and i don't i don't mean that just professionally i mean that like personally you got married i'm about to get married there's been lots of family things going on on both sides of my family and Christina's family. You've had a lot going on in your life personally. This whole term, this last term and a half has just been just nuts. Yeah. Like I, I don't remember when it started and when it finished aside from the calendar that I have on my phone when yeah. I wake up in the morning. You know what I mean? But I mean, and all the emails that I'm ignoring. 
<laughs> I think I recall talking to you at some point about mm. um, how we keep relationships going. Um, when you're in grad school, when you're getting into your job in my postdoc, I feel like I did a lot in my PhD because I often miss texts and I missed e- emails and I, I like to think that I get to all of them and I just don't. And I go through like my Instagram inbox, for example, and I'm like, oh, mm. that was kind of shady. I probably should have should have written back. So it's it's really tough to manage and to to forget or to live in the now sometimes when you're in grad school. And that, that's an issue, not just in grad school. So it's not even just a sort of uh, sort of an exemplary moment, but like in our daily lives, it's, it's lives. It's really tough to sort of take a step back and realize that you're kind of ignoring some things that should be taken care of or like not dealing with relationships in the same way. And I think it's like kind of a lesson we can all take It's like kind of take a step back and, every now and then go through those emails or go through that Instagram DM message and respond to the people. Cause people are clearly taking a moment to, um, you know, engage with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point. I I've tried to do that quite a bit in the last few weeks actually. And it's actually incredible how much I've missed, but I have reconnected sometimes the, the things that I really, really want to do, I have to put on the back burner almost as a way of protecting that thing, you know, not not to be like not to have a cop out about it but (laughs) this podcast is the thing that had to be on the back burner for both of us for quite a while and so now that we've gotten through um a really really crazy set of terms for both of us but really productive this is a testament to our commitment to this thing despite our absence for almost half a year together now i'm really really excited to get going on this thing so same we've made a couple key changes there's going to be some format changes to the show we are now casting together for the first time online through zencaster.com and so far it seems to be working out really well i think we're going to have to go back and check the quality to see if there's any blips and and things like that but if there are any we, we certainly apologize and we we've got a new set of content lined up moving forward so i think what we're doing today derek is catching up and then yeah. we're going to have some some guests that you and i have done individually we're going to be doing some casting together while you're at the ASA with new guests on Zencaster, which will be really interesting to see um, yeah. whether or not that works. And yeah, man, moving forward, moving forward. Yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a it's been a minute um, off this podcast, but I think going forward, moving to a, a thing where we do it online, or at least use the tools that are available to do it online will make things much easier because getting us in the same room proved to be what was lacking in the last few months. And our, our commitment to face-to-face contact is what prevented us, I think. Um, so that being said, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this sort of new chapter. We've got a couple big things coming up, um, a couple big sort of series, big interviews. So it should be wonderful. Yeah, man. There, there's been a lot of a lot of opportunities to um, talk to people in the last month that we want to have on the show. So I have a really, really great interview queued up already. I interviewed Midori Ogosawara. Oh my goodness, I'm an awful colleague. Should I be able <laughs> to? Okay, you can post that. You can post that. <laughs> Sorry, Midori. Midori was 
one of, if not the only, scholars to have researched surveillance culture in Japan, which historically predates anything Snowden said about Japanese surveillance or the legacy of the NSA inside of Japan, well before Snowden said anything about it. And Midori learned about that by interviewing Snowden. So you can imagine that was a really, really exciting interview. Yeah, especially for the kind of theme of this podcast has been on surveillance. Absolutely. I imagine listeners are very into that. So that's going to be coming out very shortly. That's wonderful. Another one that I'm going to be doing next week is sitting down with the co-director of the Center for Advanced Computing here at Queen's University. His name is Chris McPhee. He has become a wonderful colleague, and he's even becoming a good buddy. There is going to be so much to say in that episode, which I hope will be a nice follow-up to today's episode, because I am really excited to share what's been going on in my little world of smartphone geolocation metadata tracking. On that note, why don't we why don't we chat about that? Why don't we chat about what you've been working on? Because your project is pretty wild and pretty fascinating to me. Thanks, man. I am totally excited to talk about this. As you guys know, I never have a shortage of things to say when it comes to myself. Cue laughter. That was <laughs> that there. Thank you, Derek. Thank you for validating my joke. I was laughing at the fact that I didn't laugh in the first place. <laughs> that was a lot of complexity in there. Like <laughs> so a lot has changed. Yeah. Uh, get back on track here. A lot has changed since we last spoke about a day in the life of metadata in October of last year. At that time, I was talking to some engineers at Queen's University, as well as engineers from different parts of the world, including Carnegie Mellon University in the United States, Yale University, UT Austin. I spoke to some people at U of T as well as some people um, that I met while I was away in Germany last year about whether or not somebody could track a bit of like GPS coordinate data in something like a consumer profile. So let's say, for example, Derek Silver's Google profile in terms of like, I don't know, your shopping preferences, what your history of browsing looks like, or your history of movement from your smartphone and how and whether all of that data amalgamates under your name and your unique device identification code stored in Google servers. If there's one GPS coordinate in there, in the history of your movement with your phone, can we reverse track that thing through their cloud, through your phone, through the multiple layers of your smartphone's operating system, the application that sent it out, right down to the sensor? Is this possible? And most people said it's impossible. I mean, it was pretty resounding that as as much excitement there was around this idea, like it was basically impossible and, and I was kind of living on cloud nine and this wasn't going to happen. But Chris McPhee, his co-director at the computing center said, no, we can totally do this. And he loves the idea from the same set of reasons that I shared in the beginning with him privacy and surveillance. What does the world of surveillance look like in terms of metadata? Not the things inside of our emails, not the the things inside of our texts like pictures or words, but the math of that data, 
the data of the data, so to speak. We talked about this pretty extensively in that episode in October. And the reason why we knew it was important is, of course, because of the Snowden revelations in 2013. We all saw a set of slides that said to us, the world's surveillance agencies are not interested in what you say. They're interested in the measurements around what you're doing, because that paints a more animated and more colorful picture about your life. And by accumulating that data, they can make predictions based upon the history of how you behave with a device in your hand. So basically, this is where we're at in October. Can we do this? They say yes, and a lot has happened since then. In that time, Chris and I have given almost a half dozen talks together at Queen's University to different people, to um, geospatial data librarians, to uh, the Surveillance Studies Center on two occasions, including the Surveillance Studies Summer Seminar, which was a wonderful experience that I'll talk about um, a little bit more in this episode. We've given talks to people at uh, his computing center. And what we've basically done is hired a small team of very, very talented computer programmers. And they have begun the process of injecting these kind of strategic modules inside of an Android device that we purchased. And we are tracking the data that is created by a GPS sensor as it moves into the operating system. And that process is initiated because an application made the request to the operating system to access that data. So if you could imagine your operating system, your smartphone, in terms of five layers, and we don't need to get into the specifics about what those layers are, but there's essentially five layers of how an Android operating system functions. At the very bottom, is the hardware. And the first layer of interaction that it has with the operating system is our first target. We wanted to see how the GPS sensor was making data and how that data moved into the operating system. We intercepted that movement and we recorded everything that we saw. And that's what we've been presenting on so far. That's basically where we're at. It's taken a long time to get there and we have quite a bit more work to, to do ahead of us, but it should all be done by the end of August of this year, which is really, really exciting. And what do you sort of expect to find or to, yeah, what do you sort of expect to produce in, in August? A lot. <laughs> so I'll give you, I'll give you an example of, of, of exactly what it is that, that we recorded so that you guys have an understanding. So yeah, this, this all seems pretty esoteric and sort of pie in the sky to me here it is you're you're not wrong man and it was um it was as elucidating as it was confusing for me to actually see the data that we recorded so here's what happened uh less than two months ago we took our samsung device which is an s7 and we set it down inside of a lab a, a small room inside of the center for advanced computing at queen's university we turned the device on and we put software in the device that our programmers designed to intercept that little tiny data flow that I told you about. The device ran without moving for five minutes. Not moving for five minutes. And we turned the phone off. And what ended up happening was really remarkable. We got a data log. And I want you to imagine that if you were to take this data log and put it into a Word document, Calibri, 12-point font, single-spaced, 
there were over a thousand pages of GPS coordinates inside of five minutes of recording. And it was totally mind-blowing to see that three megabytes worth of data was recorded inside of five minutes. And the GPS coordinates were really, really interesting to to look at. So we used um, a tool that uh, Google provides called um, GNSS Analyzer. And what it allowed us to do was to basically visualize what satellites we were communicating with for that period of five minutes. We identified 13 different satellites, nine to 11 of which we had a pretty solid connection to for that five minute period. There was a lot of cutting out. There were a lot of signals being deflected and and, and lost along the way, which made it um, really interesting to figure out. And after this uh, log was produced, we noticed that the operating system started producing another log. So we started recording that log as well. This log wasn't as large. It was about half the size. And what it was, was basically derivative data. There's the raw data, the thousand pages that I just told you. And then there's an algorithm situated at that first layer of the operating system that is taking all of that raw data and it's smoothing it out. It's using an algorithm or some kind of mathematical equation that we can't see. Google actually just closed it off. It used to be open source. We're not allowed to see it anymore. And it's basically getting rid of what it considers to be noise. Anytime there was a lost connection with the satellite, it threw that stuff out. And it basically found the median between all of the raw data coming towards the phone and and use that data to basically make a determination or a claim about where that phone was during that five minutes of time uh, based upon some assumptions about how fast the earth was moving, how fast the satellites were moving and what directions, whether or not there was interference, so on and so forth. So we have basically two logs. We have raw data and we have derivative data. What was really interesting about the process though is what happens when you zoom in on the data. To squint at this sort of stuff, to squint at a thousand pages of data, even on a cutting edge computer, made Microsoft Word freeze multiple times. Like this wasn't a healthy thing for my computer to experience. But we found something in there, Derek, that I'm really, really excited to tell you about. I have never heard this before, by the way. So I'm excited as well. I was trying to hold off for a really long time. You can imagine that after doing a couple, two presentations on this now since, I've really wanted to tell you about this. <laughs> so here's here's what we found. Inside of that thousand pages of the raw data script, or the data log, I should say, we noticed that there is headers at the top of the log, right? So the log starts off with a title, and then there's there's these things called headers that basically declare what variables are presented in what order when you're looking at the log. So for example, a raw GPS coordinate piece of data will say R-A-W comma and a whole bunch of numbers with periods and commas that basically represent longitude and latitude. Mm -hmm. Raw means it's raw data from the GPS sensor. But you'll recall, though, that I said there was a whole bunch of stuff inside of that header. I mean, really, there shouldn't be that much to read if it's just raw, comma, 
GPS longitude latitude, right? So what is all of this other stuff? This was really, really strange for me. I showed it to the, the programmers that built this little intervention. They said, oh, well, you know, that's NMEA data. What the heck is NMEA data? When you scroll down past the raw coordinates that are coming in, about 15 to 18 lines at a time, we see this new series of data popping up. And this NMEA data stuff was really, really fascinating. NMEA stands for National Marines Electronics Association. Huh. That was the first thing that popped up after I did a search for this. NMEA. So what NMEA is, is basically a format, a standardization of data coming out of the GPS sensor. This format in particular is called 0183. And there's about six of them. This specific kind of data format has its own series of headers that indicate to the, the reader of that script what kinds of information is being included. So what we found was in that first bit of NMEA data was information about what satellites we were talking to and from what country those satellites were being managed what relay stations in the world were involved in that, a checksum to make sure that basically the, the, the data as it's being received is um, verified, there's no noise in there. We caught some information about uh, assumptions about noise and how much massaging would have to be done by other uh, software. And we also learned a little bit more about other processes taking place as the GPS sensor is producing its data. So it seems that the NMEA format is reaching out to other sensors in the phone, like the accelerometer and the gyroscope, and is embedding that data inside of the script, so the script coming from the GPS sensor itself. So you can imagine, this is really, really weird for us. This is not like, a, oh yeah, we saw that coming. As a sociologist, this is really, really profound for me because I'm now wondering why uh, a, an agency like the NMEA has the right to request information from other sensors and embed that data inside of a GPS sensor script without the user knowing. We were just trying to find GPS coordinate data, and it turns out that there's this entirely other set of subroutines going on to hide other data inside of that script. And that totally knocked us off of our feet. And it's already launching into a new research campaign, which I'm really, really excited to uh, really dig my heels into. So basically, that's where we're at right now. Okay, let's, before we go any further, why would this matter to Joe iPhone? The GPS sensor is not acting with its own agency. If you can imagine a piece of hardware inside of your device that is doing something because it's programmed to do that thing, we're imagining a very linear process of data creation, data movement, and data change. And in the context, that's how of, I that's how I exactly. envision. It. Sorry and, and, to cut you off. Yeah, that's like that's how I envision. So I'm like thinking, okay, I want to go. I need to get, I don't know, to X Y Z address. So I'm going into Google and I'm putting that in, and then I assume that my information is going directly to Google and being used for one specific purpose. And that is the purpose that I intend to use it. Exactly. 
it's not a linear process at all. And because that, that GPS sensor is not simply just doing what we thought it was going to do, we're learning that there are two data streams being produced at that first moment of interaction with the operating system from that sensor. We're getting raw GPS data, but we're also getting this very rich, very complicated, multifaceted stream of data, NMEA0183, that has got its own series of headers and message formats that uh, allow the reader to understand that there are mode indicators about whether or not the GPS sensor in the phone has been set to automatically collect data or if it has to be manually turned on and off. We're, we're seeing inside of these data formats, as another example, that this data set is specifically designed for two-dimensional or three-dimensional rendering. The satellite IDs that we're getting, we got about 13 of them, 68, 69, 70, 78, 79, are from the GLONASS system, not GPS system. GPS is North American satellites. These ones are Russian. These are Russian satellites that are used for both commercial and military purposes. So we weren't even communicating with North American satellites. We're communicating with Russian commercial and military satellites. That's so what you're finding. That's what we found so far. And we've barely scratched the surface. So the reason why I especially think this is significant for a random Joe smartphone user, the National Marine Electronics Association, from what I can tell from some very, very light research, man, was created in the 1950s, so way yeah, before I'm GPS. I'm looking up, 1957. 1957. And the reason why this organization was created was to basically overcome a problem. Mm -hmm. You had so many different kinds of manufacturers of naval equipment, displays, radar, uh, wind transducers, um, ways to connect, uh, to talk to the battery, to get information about whether or not it was working, to see whether or not the engine monitor was actually functioning properly. Can you talk to the speed transducer in order to figure out, you know, the, the trajectory of the boat? All of these different devices used in boats for a long time, and maybe not as early as the 1950s, can't communicate with one another because the data they're producing is different from the other devices. So the NMEA comes together to basically create a data standardization that allows these different manufacturers to have the different pieces of technology communicate with one another with ease. They basically truncate a whole bunch of different kinds of data using different kinds of representations like 68 or 69 to represent something as complicated as like the, the name of a satellite or they use other uh, variables like A and B to figure out whether or not you're working with two-dimensional or three-dimensional data. All of this stuff is created way before GPS to allow different technology to talk to one another. So where this freaks me out a little bit from a privacy perspective is that my GPS sensor in my Android smartphone is producing a data format that allows my device to talk to listening devices like stingrays that the government uses mm. it's easy for some other apparatus to intercept this raw gps data from my phone and learn a whole bunch of things that are not discussed in a privacy policy that the process of tracking somebody happens at this kind of mundane location and mundane process of data creation because somebody made the decision to embed 
this very, very rich data set in a flow that nobody thought to consider as, as relevant for data privacy. Because what is the context of data privacy today when we're talking about geolocation? It's triangulation, it's mm. Wi-Fi, it's Bluetooth, it's cell tower receptivity and GPS data. Nobody talks about location privacy on a device by just looking at GPS coordinate data. That's absurd. It's a combination of many types of data. But here we are looking at a data stream that is talking to my gyroscope and accelerometer without my permission at the very first instant that it's asked to do something. This is fascinating. There, so there is something here. So I'm reading the first line of this NMEA, the Nas National Marine Electronics Association. The first line of their like about, about the NMEA. It was founded in 1957 by a group of electronic dealers who got together at the New York Boat Show to discuss how to strengthen <laughs> relationships with electronic manufacturers. What the hell? I want to, like, I think an interesting point of research <laughs> is to explore what the hell happened at that boat show. Like, there has to be some documents to figure out, like, who were the vested stakeholders? What actually went down at that boat show to create this, like, seeming this standard for that is in 2019, you know, like, is our standard 70 years later? We're still, we're using it. That's a really great question. And I mean, um, this is the kind of thinking that a lot of people in uh, the surveillance studies community first move towards. And it's not something that I would first move towards because mm -hmm. I'm not trained as a sociologist. First. Yeah. You're, and you want, you're more interested in the technical side of this. Yeah. I'm, I'm more interested in like what the Germans would call like media sciences. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. really fascinated with microprocesses. Yeah. And in, in like technical, I'm interested in materiality kind of things. But the the social history of this institution and this this introduction of this data data format is really fascinating. So another way that this this can be thought about um, is in the context of us first discovering it. So I show mm -hmm. all of this to I show this NMEA stuff to the the programmers that we're working with, and you know he goes, "This is by NMEA the way, they have an government. Instagram account just just so we know." Oh, NMEA. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. We'll <laughs> definitely be checking that out. So I show this to these guys. They say it's NMEA and their first assumption is really, really interesting. So this is what they say. What if the GPS system goes down? Mm. What do you do? This kind of data that is enriching itself by talking to other sensors in my phone is still a way for the operating system to produce a certainty, to make a truth claim about the whereabouts of that device at a, at a specific point in time, even if something as fundamental as a GPS system goes down or you lose connections altogether, that the data stream is still populating itself, that this is basically a techno-scientific claim to reliability, despite the fact that an entire system that it's dependent upon might not actually be there. I'm, I, I, that need, this needs to be, I don't know, understood a little bit better or like deconstructed here. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that if if the GPS like if power to your phone for instance goes down this is still recording or like what what are you saying exactly That GPS data stream mm -hmm. will have NMEA data in it making reference to GPS location GPS functionality position all that sort of stuff uh, regardless of whether or not that system is working NMEA data is still going to show up because some of the headers that they use do not necessarily need GPS feedback.
They also use accelerometer data. They also use gyroscope data, just like they do in marine boats. Yeah. Instead of talking to the one device that is solely, apparently, solely dependent upon the position of global positioning satellites in the air above us, it's going to go talk to my accelerometer. It's going to take the feedback that it gets from those sensors and stick it inside of the GPS raw coordinate data stream in that log so that no matter what happens, it's basically reassurance for the operating system. If an application says to the operating system, hey, guy, I need GPS data so that I can make Pokemon Go work. What happens we love if, Pokemon on this we show. We do. We love, we probably referenced it six times. <laughs> and I still haven't really played with it, but maybe we'll change that at my wedding or something. Um, even if that, that stuff goes down, this stream, the GPS coordinate stream, is still going to give some feedback to the operating system using different sensors. So even if GPS goes down, the operating system is there to save the day. And it starts at the programming of a sensor. Somebody made the technical decision to create a sensor that will reach out to other sensors to produce data in a completely unrelated stream. It's basically an insurance policy. Why isn't this discussed in a privacy policy? I have no idea. I would want this. I would want this information. I've looked it up, man. NMEA data nmea data doesn't exist i i've looked up uh security dialogue critical studies on security surveillance in society it hasn't been mentioned once wow so that's something that you and i are going to be talking about as a publication strategy if we go to germany in the fall this is so yeah oh we we should talk about that but let's save it for a moment because i'm not done with this uh, th- this is like blowing my mind. So this is the first time I've heard a lot of this. Tommy and I haven't really been able to connect and chat about these things in very, very specific detail. A couple things, but not much. But I, like I'm more, I guess I'm more of a consumer than you are, Tommy. I'm I'm much more like the laissez-faire, typical, like I don't care. I don't have information that people care about, whatever. But I'm seeing things like, so I follow Apple News pretty closely, um, I felt like, and they're, they've rebranded their find my app, um, which basically their pitch is that you can find your devices now, like with the new iOS that's coming in the fall, you can find your devices, even if they're off- offline. So how this works is like somebody steals your MacBook, for instance, and Apple can track your MacBook through or your iPhone or whatever through all of the other Apple devices that are there, that are around. It can triangulate your particular Apple phone, even if it's offline, even if it's not connected to anything. Is that using NME? Like, I don't know. I don't know if you can answer this, but is that like using this technology that you're referring to? Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's an awesome question. My intention with all of this is to obviously produce a ton of data scripts, right? Yeah. I finished just a few moments ago telling you that five minutes of GPS coordinate data, which is obviously not just GPS coordinate data, it's also this NMEA stuff, right? That's that's three megabytes. That's a mm-hmm. thousand pages for mm-hmm. five minutes of listening. 
what happens when we install 16 more interception modules at different points of the operating system mm-hmm. to continue tracking the stream? It's, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be in, in gigabytes, gigabytes of data that we're going to record. And we're going to continue to make these kind of discoveries about which side third and fourth and fifth removed algorithms are handling this data. And mm-hmm. I might be able to answer your question. But from what I can see right here in, in our very light assessment, if we're understanding this properly, and as far as this this team is concerned, we are, there's something really significant going on here because the National Marine Electronics Association's data format, like you said, man, is over 70 years old. And I know factually that NMEA data is a point of manipulation that is used by basically leading government telephone eavesdropping devices. So in 2016, a graduate student named Andre Mruz at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology produced a really, really interesting paper where he reverse engineered a telephone eavesdropping device called an MC catcher, an international mobile subscriber identity catcher. Every single device in the world, smartphone device, has a unique identification number. And there are devices out there that can intercept those ID numbers as a way of hijacking mobile phone track uh, traffic and tracking location data in real time to figure out where somebody is and what they're saying. So what he did was basically listened in on a target phone using a device that he created. And he was able to figure out where that phone was and what data that phone was transmitting through the cell network by pretending to be a cell tower. That's what an MC catcher does. Mm. You pretend to be a cell tower. So now you have all of these phones connect to you and you start listening to what they're doing. And the process of listening requires hacking into the data stream. And that data stream is usually encoded except for NMEA data. The way that he broke into the data stream was by exploiting this NMEA data format that is embedded inside of this data stream. This paper was produced in 2016. So this is very, very significant from a privacy perspective, right? There's evidence that government listening tools take advantage of this data format in order to eavesdrop on people's devices. And that, that blows my mind that... This data is being produced by the sensor, not even the operating system. This consumer devices sensor is programmed to produce this data format as a second order of business, if not the primary, uh, co-primary order of business along with that raw GPS data. That's wild. And this is a particular chip that is on all of our smart smartphones, correct? Every consumer smartphone in the world is doing this. Wow. This is fascinating. So we should we should be care we should care much more about NMEA than just simple like GPS coordinates on our phone is what you're saying. Absolutely. I don't know anything about this institution. I mean, it seems like you know more than I do already. <laughs> I just doing uh, some Google <laughs> search. By doing some Google, yeah. And I mean the 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 research priority of this project right now is to finish the data. Yeah. The data uh, extraction, so to speak. We're going to end up having, like I said, gigabytes of different scripts. And we're going to spend a year 
minimum reading this stuff and trying to figure out what it's saying. It's going to say something. If we found out this already from that Mm -hmm. tiny point of interception, there will be something else to be said. Now, this comes with a caveat. I am not trying to say that there's something nefarious going on. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that the NMEA, the NME association is bad, that they're basically, um, you know, like a, a shadow extension of the, the surveillance apparatus of the state and the world surveillance system. Sounds like you're not a surveillance scholar. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm just joking. I was just so. No, no, it's okay, man. But I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to attend to the complexity of, of what happens when you have two completely different sides come together to make a debate about this. There are going to be people who say that this NMEA data standardization format is quintessential to the function of a device, that if you don't have it, the phone can't communicate with itself. Because what happens if, for example, you pull out the GPS sensor and you put in a different one produced by a different manufacturer? This format makes the function of it possible. People are going to say that this is about techno-scientific certainty. This is about accuracy. This is about making sure that your movements are truthful when people are making claims. So there's always another side to this, right? And I'm very interested to see what the defense is for including this data. The point that I'm trying to make is that by including this data, this data standardization across every consumer device in the world and making it mandatory, you're exposing people to an entire assemblage of data collection and analysis that's been taking place in the background for who knows how long, for at least 15 years, 10 years, and we've never talked about it. Hmm. This has never propagated in any privacy, in any significant social scientific privacy debate that I've ever seen. And people ought to know about this. If my GPS sensor is not telling Google Maps that... um, it's just receiving GPS data. If it's also sharing accelerometer, if it's also sharing gyroscope, if it's sharing a screen touch event data, we need to know about that because bureaucrats and privacy legislators have no idea about how to craft a meaningful and comprehensive privacy policy. I'm not a positivist. I'm not interested in reifying this belief in the world that the only meaningful knowledge out there comes from measurements and science and math. You know that. Mm-hmm. I'm a post-positivist, but we still need to get into the gray and the messy stuff in between so that we can actually have a meaningful conversation about how these minute, seemingly insignificant processes in our devices are actually unfolding in real time. If this is missing, it's not going to be soon because this is what I'm going to write about. And we're going to continue to write about these kinds of discoveries as we keep moving through the operate, operating systems architecture. That's wild. Yeah, I, uh, I, it's just, this kind of blows my mind that we could miss something so big. And it also seems like it's not only just missing from sort of our analysis, but it's also, it also seems if I'm reading or if I'm listening well, it seems like it's a massive exploit to the, to the safety of the rest of our phones or to the privacy of the rest of our data. If somebody can get into your phone through this, if it's an exploit that can easily be sort of hacked in terms of uh, what you were saying about that grad student um, from what, Norway, was it? Yeah, Andre Mruz, Nor- Norwegian University of Science and Tech. Like, I think, my, I don't know, maybe it's too rudimentary of an understanding of technology, but from what I understand is you only need one exploit to kind of 
brick a phone or to make it render your device unusable. Yeah, I think that's something that people are going to want to know about. And again, it's not because like <clears throat> I'm a particularly high stakes traveler. Uh, before a couple of years ago, I would have been one of those people that said, hey, I have nothing to hide. Don't worry about it. But it's a, privily, a pretty privileged thing to say. Right? Absolutely, it is. I'm not from the Middle East. I'm not an ethnic minority woman that is trying to find uh, some sort of political asylum in a, a very, very hostile political environment that is the U.S. right now. Mm. We know matter-of-factly that bulk metadata surveillance is a real problem, and that metadata is being used to build profiles about people. This isn't just from the Snowden revelations. This has been trickling out. There's been more investigation into these sort of things since, and one of the, the future episodes that we're going to do is going to be about mission creep on the Mexico-U.S. border, where... NSA technologies developed in Afghanistan are being deployed in Texas to track metadata from people's phones near the border. People need to know about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this, this there's yeah. no no ignoring this anymore. It has to be talked about. Yeah. Yeah. This is fascinating. On that note, I think we should actually wrap up this episode right there. It's a perfect sort of segue into what we're going to be talking about next week or next episode. Yeah, man. Th listen, thanks for being so patient with me just like talking. I, I have to say that that was wild. This is it's the most exciting research project I've ever been a part of. And I, yeah. I just can't shut up about it. So thank you for letting me riff off like this. I hope that <laughs> for our next episode, we can talk about what you've been up to for those last few months. Oh, for sure. That always comes. I always can talk about myself and random <laughs> things. <laughs> But no, it's been great to reconnect, my friend. Yeah, man, absolutely. It's so good to hear your voice. I'm glad <laughs> we've got this figured out. And um, yeah, let's let's see if we can actually punch off a few a uh, few episodes this week. You've got some time for that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Oh, I I know so, my friend. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit your cell phone up in the morning, <laughs> and I think we should reconvene around this time. So I don't know. I think I'm gonna stop using my cell phone and all mobile devices after today's <laughs> chat. <laughs> that sounds good, man. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch with Derek and Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time, keep listening to the noise.